Good morning, church fam. Check one, two. That's my fault, not the sound person's fault. Got you, V. Uh, welcome. My name is Joel, and I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here at Friendship Church. And Thomas Gold was here last Sunday, and he mentioned this mystery list of guest speakers as Pastor Matt has gone on sabbatical. So I guess I'm up next. Tag, I'm it. Uh, but usually you'll see me either here in Prior Lake or over in Shakopee with the opportunity to lead the musical portions of our worship services. And so uh, not doing that today, but it'll be a little different. Uh, I want to admit something to all of you. I love my job. It's awesome. Probably the best job I've ever had. I've had a few. Um, but man, working here is great to be a part of the staff, to be a part of this church body. I've been a part of Friendship Church since, I think, 2010, and to be, whether on staff or to be just actively attending, uh, it's just been such a great time. And I don't know a lot about wine, but I know, and I've heard that it gets better and better with age, or at least people claim. I don't quite have the palate, but uh, the same goes for my experience or time here at Friendship. It just has continued to get better and better with age and the fellowship that we have here, and the community that we have here, and the dedication that we have here to following Christ and to living according to his word has been so good. Not only that, but working here underneath our leadership team, which is made up of Pastor Matt, Pastor Kenny, and Tracy Hatch, our executive director, uh, it can't get any better than that. And I'll tell you a secret, maybe you know it, but they really love Jesus. And they care about what's going on here at Friendship Church. And I know they care about what's going on in your hearts. And I'm not saying that because next month starts the review process for all employees. <laughs> um, so yeah, we had the opportunity to listen to Thomas Gold last week. As he helped kick off this series, Baruch Kabab Hashem Adonai, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We learned about the importance of Passover and its significance of the total freedom for God's people from slavery in Egypt and how it is significant of Jesus coming to be our total freedom from our slavery to sin. We learned about the shush becoming the shout. In the first three years of Jesus' ministry, he would do miracles and shush people. Don't tell anyone. And now, as he's entered in his triumphal entry, riding on the donkey, he welcomes the shout. And he wants people to acknowledge him for being the Messiah. And then lastly, Thomas left us with a couple of truths about Jesus as we begin this new year. One, that Jesus knows and he sees everything in our lives. Two, that he asks us to follow him, and often in ways that are sacrificial but that in his return or Jesus' reward, which is often greater than anything that we can ever offer. And then we were left with the challenge to consider all of the things in our life and whether or not Jesus was the king over them. Believers today, we're so fortunate because we get the full word of God at our hands. We can read to the ending. We know what happens and we have an expectation of Jesus' second return. But yet we still struggle in the day-to-day to see Jesus for who he really is. Last week as we learned about 
Jesus coming in during the triumphal entry, riding on a donkey, people standing all around saying, Hosanna in the highest, and Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But sadly, many of those people would go on to misunderstand Jesus for who he truly is. They didn't have eyes to see. And so I'm wondering if we have eyes to see. Mark wrote his gospel to introduce us to the Son of God. And in last, a couple falls ago, fall 2022, we kicked off the gospel of Mark with a series called Jesus Revealed, where we learn about Jesus' identity being revealed to a lot of people, how people respond to him, and it becomes clear really quick that Jesus is unlike anyone who's ever walked the earth, that he is in fact God in human flesh. And the first four chapters of the Gospel of Mark are filled with Jesus healing people, with him casting out demons, teaching in parables. He forms this group of 12 guys and calls them the disciples. And they continue to see day after day the authority or the power of Jesus at work. Crowds would form around Jesus and the disciples as they moved all about Israel, despite the fact that Jesus was trying to shush people. And yet, in chapter 4, it ends with Jesus and his disciples. They're on a boat in the middle of this really big storm, and Jesus is sleeping, and his disciples are freaking out, and he wakes up from his nap, and he says to the storm, Peace, be still. And then he turns to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples the ones still closest to Jesus still don't see him for who he is. In the spring of 2023, we jumped back into the Gospel of Mark with a sermon series called Open Your Eyes. In Mark chapters 5 through 8, Jesus put his power on display as he established his authority over everything in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realms. And more than that, he repeatedly teaches his disciples that through faith they can access this power to accomplish works of the kingdom for God. For example, in Mark 6, we see Jesus. He sends his disciples out two by two to do works in his name. In verses 12 and 13 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples did that through the power of Jesus. And after that, Jesus continues to do miracles. He takes a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and he feeds a lot of people. Uh, by the way, he walks in water. He casts out even more demons. And yet his disciples struggled to see him. We were in the Gospel of Mark for the third time in the fall of 23 in a series called Kingdom Logic. And again, we see the disciples' misunderstanding to the, de to the degree that they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They get to walk the earth with Jesus every single day and they're fighting about which one of them is best. Come on. In those chapters 9 and 10 of Mark, Jesus challenged what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And he taught people how to live in the kingdom, how to treat others in the kingdom. And often what he communicated was upside down from what people currently understood. And that brings us to Baruch Abba B'Shem Adonai, 
the series title for the chapters Mark 11 through 16. And we've seen Jesus' authority a few ways as we've made our way through Mark, right? And today we're going to see that authority of Jesus again, among other things. So we've got quite a bit to get, get through in this passage. It's got four distinct areas, and it kind of seems a little disconnected, but as we get to the end, we'll see that it makes sense. But first, before we jump in, I want to start with something that maybe doesn't make that much sense at all. A riddle, perhaps. Whoever makes it, tells it not. Whoever takes it, knows it not. And whoever knows what it is, wants it not. What is it? Whoever makes it, tells it not. Whoever takes it, knows it not. Whoever knows what it is, wants it not. What is it? We'll find out in a little bit. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning, and we ask that you help us to see you today. As we dig into your word, please reveal your will to us and give us understanding. Help us to walk in your ways as a result. In your name, Jesus, amen. So let's begin in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. When I first read through this, part of me just wants to understand it, to be hangry Jesus. Right? Jesus was hungry, and the fig tree didn't have figs, so he curses it. But that can't be it. What does the last sentence say? And his disciples heard it. Through the entire time Jesus was uh, with his disciples, he was intentional. The seasons for fig trees growing leaves and growing figs were different. Which is why Mark writes that it was not the season for figs. But there were some species of fig trees that could bear fruit in that season. In 2007, a theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul recalls this time in one of his seminary classes under this professor named Dr. James Kelso. And this professor uh, would teach on the customs and, uh, sorry, what is it, culture of Palestine which is within the area where the story of the fig tree is taking place. So Sproul learned, and he shares that there is clearly, there is a clearly defined season for figs, and most species of figs grow within that season. However, there were a few rare species of fig trees that bore fruit out of the normal fig season. The final test of whether one could expect figs from a fig tree was not the time of year, but whether the foliage of the tree was in full bloom. So Jesus, knowing the customs and culture of Palestine even better than Dr. Kelso, saw this fig tree in full bloom, which would clearly indicate that figs would be present on it. He turned aside to satisfy satisfy his hunger from these figs, but instead of finding an exotic fig tree bearing delicious figs out of season, he found a tree that was barren. Seeing the opportunity for a lesson with his disciples, Jesus cursed the fig tree. One of the things we learn through this is that 
this action, it's symbolic and it's related to all of the hypocrisy that's going on and the people who have the appearance that they're bearing fruit when in fact they're not. This metaphor is specifically related to Israel at the time and God's judgment on them, on the fruitless people who had turned to empty rituals and legalism like we see in Mark 7, verses 6 through 7. This is a story when Jesus is being confronted and questioned by religious leaders and he says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is calling out hypocrisy and he's standing up for people to bear fruit in their worship of God. We'll see that even more as we continue on in Mark chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, set, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I'm curious, has anyone here ever traveled overseas and needed to exchange money so that you had whatever nation's money to buy stuff, do your things? Some. Has anyone here ever been to a, a gas station and bought gas? Uh, perhaps. And you go get your gas, but maybe you want something else, like a gallon of milk or uh, something else you need, like donuts. Really convenient, and you pay a higher cost for items like that at a gas station than you would elsewhere. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship, not kind of like a convenience store. And the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, it points to Jesus in chapter 3 and identifies him as the Lord of the temple and he who comes to purify it. And so Jesus enters the temple and he sees that it's become a really bad local quick trip. He sees that it's become a local bank with really high prices, a place of convenience and not worship, a place of commerce and not prayer. There are a handful of renderings of what the temple looked like when Jesus was on earth. And if you were to do a quick search online, you'll see that it's this massive complex with different areas compartmentalized. And one of them, the biggest, is called the outer court. It's also called the court of the Gentiles. And pretty much anyone could go into this court. For the Gentiles or the non-Jews, this was the only place they could go. But... There were also other areas for Jewish women or Jewish men, chief priests. And like Thomas was talking about last Sunday in Mark 11 through 16, it's covering the span of a week of time compared to Jesus' first three years of ministry. And Passover is included in that time. So people all over Israel are traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. There were even the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who would come because there were some people that weren't Jewish that believed in the Jewish God. So people from other nations were coming. 
to worship at the temple. And this meant for lots of different people from different backgrounds with different types of money coming from far, far away, needing to either exchange their money for currency accepted in Jerusalem, or maybe they need to buy an animal for sacrifice. These money changers and the people who were selling animals for sacrifice, they knew this, and frankly, they'd take advantage of it. People from all over needing different money. Okay, you can change it out, but it's going to cost you. People needing animals for sacrifice because they didn't want to bring an animal from their native land uh, because animals for sacrifice needed to be without blemish. And so what happens if I'm bringing an animal from far, far away and it gets hurt or it becomes sick? It's useless. And so either way, I'm left to buy an animal once I get to the temple and add a premium cost. And so you wonder, is treating people that way and taking advantage of them to worship the same God that you worship, is that bearing fruit in any kind of way? And so again, just like how the fig tree had appearance to bear fruit but didn't, Jesus is righteously angry with those who are in the temple who should be bearing fruit in worship and prayer, yet they're living life in what they've turned into a really bad convenience store. We also have the chief priests and the scribes to deal with here in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. There are many instances in the Bible during Jesus' ministry where the chief priests, scribes, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, I'm sure you've heard many of these names before, they, uh, they would be onlookers as Jesus was ministering. And being leaders in the Jewish faith, they would take the opportunity to question Jesus. We'll see them doing that specifically in verse 27, but here we see them seeking a way to destroy Jesus because they feared him and how crowds were astonished at his teaching. I don't know about any of you guys, but my view of these Jewish leaders, oftentimes when I read these accounts in the Bible, it's so tainted by my love for Jesus. As if I were standing next to Jesus in these moments and I'd say to the, to the Pharisees, who do you think you are to talk to Jesus that way? As if Jesus would need me to defend him. In reality, though, if you stop to think about these people who have devoted their entire lives to the Jewish faith, it's not that odd to see them confronting Jesus for challenging the faith of Israel. Sure, there were some bad apples in the bunch, but it's likely that at least some of these people devoted themselves to being leaders in their faith to help other people be devoted to the Jewish faith. And so if I put myself in their shoes... Yeah, I'd be intimidated by Jesus. I would be worried that these crowds would believe in Jesus' name and his teachings. And unfortunately, I would be severely hindered at seeing Jesus for who he is and miss seeing him as the Messiah and King. After that moment in the temple, Jesus and his disciples withdrew from the city. The next morning comes and is where we pick up in Mark 11, verse 20. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. First, I want to say that we have to be careful when we read verse 24 because some will take it and twist it to believe that God will grant any prayer. God's not a magic eight ball and he's not some genie that we can rub. So we have to be careful with that verse. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But when we last pass the fig tree, Jesus curses it. And we learned about how it's symbolic of God's judgment for Israel for not bearing fruit. So now when we pass the fig tree this time, we see that judgment carried out and that the fig tree has withered. Peter sees this and he points it out to Jesus as if Jesus didn't already know. Not only that, but think about how confused the disciples must have been at how Jesus responds to them in this moment. Let's walk through it again. Peter sees the dead fig tree and says, Hey, Jesus, that fig tree you cursed is dead. And then Jesus says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What? I would be a great disciple right up there with Peter with the confusion because at first glance I'm like, what are you talking about, Jesus? There's a dead fig tree. Have faith in God. Throw mountains into the sea. Good thing Jesus was patient. There are a couple things that he's teaching us here and the first is that our faith in God must be true. What have we been learning? That it's not just the appearance of fruit that matters, but that we actually bear fruit in our faith, in our true worship of God. So what are some things that keep us from bearing fruit? Okay, maybe it's not a mountain, but maybe it's our acting abilities that looking like a good Christian that prevent us from bearing fruit. Maybe it's being self-centered. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's judging others. Maybe it's the things in our life that we focus too much on, like our phones, our jobs, or our hobbies. And I know firsthand that those can be easy distractors for me living a life for Jesus that bears fruit for his name. Maybe it's that habitual sin in your life. What is preventing you from bearing fruit? We must have faith in God that he can help remove anything that stands in the way of us having a faith that bears fruit, even if it's this huge metaphorical mountain that stands in our way. Our true faith in God leads to this confidence that we can have in him, that he can do anything, even if it seems impossible, and he can do it according to his will. 
In addition to that, we must also approach God in prayer according to his will. Because God can grant any prayer. But that doesn't mean every prayer is granted. In 1 John 5, 14, it says that we can have confidence toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so when we pray over all the things in and around our lives, we pray according to God's will. But what might that look like? When we're going to bed at night, God, thank you for the day that lies ahead tomorrow. Please help me to trust you in each moment and work in me so that all the things I do and say would glorify your name. As we're driving in to work with coworkers or bosses that might not know Jesus, God, thank you for providing this job for me. I know Mike and Sally don't know the grace and salvation of Jesus. Would you please work in my life so that the joy and love in Jesus would be evident, not for my sake, but for the sake of Jesus being glorified. And that Mike and Sally might come to surrender their lives to the Lord. When we're out shopping, God, please let me be a light for, the, uh, for Jesus in all my interactions today. I know I lost my temper with the cashier last week because of the stupid coupon, but would you give me peace and patience and help me to see others through the eyes of Jesus and to treat them kindly? When praying, whatever is standing in your way of bearing fruit... God, I know the amount of time I spend on my phone distracts me from bearing fruit. God, I know that my pride and love for myself keeps me from bearing fruit. God, I know that my struggle with this sin keeps me from living in your grace to bear fruit for your glory. God, would you please remove this obstacle from my life? I believe that you can work in and through me, and so I'm yours. Have your way in my life. Praying like this can both help us to pray within God's will... But it also shows God that we have faith in him and that despite whatever the obstacle is in our life, we trust in him to be glorified in whatever we do. Let's jump back into Mark 11, verse 27, where we see the account of Jesus being questioned by Jewish leaders. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, From heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It must have been so frustrating for the Jewish leaders to to question Jesus or whenever they would speak to him because this entire account just reminds me of times, maybe the good old days, uh, playing on the playground and I'm it and tag and I just am trying to get someone. They're saying, nah, 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 boo-boo, you can't catch me. Or maybe I'm trying to copy my friend's math homework one day after school and he tells me, do your own work, dude. Come on, man, just let me tag you. I'm tired of running. When am I ever going to use this math in real life? That's pretty frustrating, and I'm sure they were more frustrated. But Jesus is making a fair deal, I think. 
He says that he'll answer their question if he answers, if they answer his, whether or not John the Baptist was anointed by God. And we know the hand of the Lord was with John the Baptist because we have access to the word today. And we can learn in Luke chapter 1, verses 66. We can also learn in Luke 1.17 and Matthew 3.1 that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And the Jewish leaders, in the same way they questioned Jesus, they spent time questioning John's authority, his ministry, which is why we see them arguing in Mark 11. If they were to say that John's ministry was supported by God, the earlier disbelief in him would be called the question. But if they say that his ministry was as a, a false prophet, they feared the mass people would turn on them. Not only that, but John's ministry was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And so out of fear of admitting to God working without their ability to see it, out of and fear of admitting that Jesus is the Messiah, or even the fear of what society would think about them or do to them, they decided to just answer by saying, we do not know. And seeing that, Jesus disregards their question and he continues on preaching and speaking in parables that we'll learn more about as we get into chapter 12 next week. But suddenly we begin to understand that these aren't just some silly stories about Jesus being angry. In that time when Jesus was on earth, he observed many people living and caring more about the Jewish laws and the Jewish ways that were created by man that led to empty worship and legalism. A people called Israel who had many, many opportunities to get it right with God, yet they continued to miss the point over and over again. And even now as we're reading in Mark 11, seeing Jesus as the Messiah revealed, many people miss the point. Some believe he's this warrior king who's come to free them from Roman rule. The chief priests and the elders think he's a liar or a false prophet, and they're trying to kill him. Yet there were still some that had eyes to see Jesus for who he was and is. Like the woman in Mark 5 who'd been bleeding for 12 years. If only I could grasp his garments, I might be healed, she believed. And do you remember what happens? In this mass crowd of people, she's able to get close enough to Jesus to touch his garments. And Jesus feels that power had gone out of him. And he stops and he says, who touched me? And then his disciples who are standing all around with their eyes closed, they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Look at all the people. And this woman comes forward and Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And by what authority, asked the chief priests. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. And through the power of God, Jesus has all authority. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and we should bless his name. So do you want to know the answer to the riddle? Whoever makes it, tells it not. Whoever takes it, knows it not. And whoever knows what it is, wants it not. What is it? 
counterfeit money. Could you imagine that you're given this lump sum of cash? And it could really help you with that significant cost in your life. And then you go to use it and you find out that it's fake? How frustrated would you be? How angry would you be with that money? Or maybe the person who gave it to you, right? How disappointed would you be? Imagine how much greater God feels as he looks down on those of us with the appearance to bear, fra- to bear fruit, yet actually do not bear fruit. How might God feel? Probably a lot more angry, a lot more frustrated. So consider this. What kind of fig tree are you? Do you have leaves? Do you bear fruit? Do you have the appearance to bear fruit, but don't? What are you going to do about it? What obstacle is hindering you from bearing fruit? Do you have faith in God that he can remove any obstacle standing in your way of bearing fruit for his glory? Is your worship true? Or is it counterfeit money before the Lord? Counterfeit worship. Just like Israel had many, many opportunities to get it right with God but didn't, the same thing goes for us. We so often don't get it right with God. There's a hundred million thousand sins on our hands every single year, and we fail to see Jesus for who he really is. But yet there's good news for us, especially because we know the ending, that Jesus died for our sins on our behalf, so that we could have eternal life with him in heaven. And so that sin wiped clean. Wiped clean so that we can be a fig tree that bears fruit. Wiped clean so that we can have a faith in Jesus that abounds in true worship and true prayer. Wiped clean so that we can glorify him as we go to work, as we encounter our neighbors, as we go shopping. Wiped clean so that we can glorify Jesus in everything that we say and do. You know, we focused a lot on bearing fruit today as if that's the end goal of our life as a Christian, as if that's the end result. That's why we believe, so that we bear fruit. Quite honestly, bearing fruit is just the natural byproduct of the Christian life. It's not the goal. The goal is to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to be more and more like him, following in his ways, spending time in the word and growing in our understanding of who Jesus is, spending time in fellowship and encouraging one another, worshiping with a sincere heart, serving others because Jesus calls us to. It's about loving, living, and serving like Jesus, right? The bearing fruit part will happen, and we might not even see it. And honestly, even more to God's glory that we don't so that we can't boast in our own ways. Look to Christ. See Christ.